Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, Pulp Edition, where we talk about genre books as opposed to movies. Uh, my name is John Cribbs. I'm co-founder of thepinksmoke.com. I'm here with the other co-founder, Mr. Christopher Funderberg. Hi, John. How are you this evening? Doing very well. I'm excited to talk about this book. You know, usually we kind of make it sort of a rule that we talk about a book that we've just read for the first time. This is actually going to be the first one, I think, that we are both... Is that a rule? With. I don't think that was ever a rule for us. Well, whether it was a rule, it's sort of how it turned out until now. Uh, yeah. We've been doing this for a year now, and now this is the first one that we're actually doing a reread for. Uh, but today, uh, today's book, the one we're going to be talking about, is The Burnt Orange Heresy by Charles Williford, uh, which is uh, kind of interesting because it's almost sort of a combination of two episodes that we've uh, done of the Pink Smoke podcast. We talked about a Williford uh, earlier in the uh, Pulp podcast, and we also spoke about Velvet... Um, and now I can't think of the name of the damn Velvet movie. Velvet Buzzsaw. Buzzsaw, yes. the Netflix film uh, that's uh, sort of has some similar themes about the art world and, and setting and location. World. And yeah, exactly. So, uh, but the main reason that I'm excited to talk, to revisit this book and talk about it again, because this is the first book that we're going to be uh, rereading so far. Usually we do a completely new book that's new to us, uh, is that there's a new film based on the Burnt Orange Heresy, directed by uh, Giuseppe Capitondi, whose only other film, feature film, uh, was released 10 years ago. He has not, it's been 10 years since he has made a movie. Uh, 2009 was his film, The Double Hour, which is a very good thriller. Uh, this is his first film since then, and it's, a very, it's an adaptation that has, uh, I think, crossed a few different hands, gone over a few different desks. Uh, for a while, Neil LeBoot was supposed to be making the movie. Uh, and so finally it was realized. So I saw it at the Tarana Film Festival. I really enjoyed it. So it made me really excited to revisit this book. And especially because Williford is one of our favorite writers. Yeah, he's a, a shared a shared favorite of me and you. So I think this is a a good thing to do, a good thing to talk about. How do you want to do? Do you want to give a brief synopsis of the novel first or do our aperitif pairings with it? Let's start uh, before we dig into it with the aperitif, which Great. is the uh, work, artwork that we choose that is a good match uh, with this book to maybe check out before digging into it. Um, mine is the Vladimir Nabokov novel, Pale Fire. Oh, great choice. Yes. Pale Fire, for those who don't know, is, wow. How do you even describe what it is? It is basically the semblance of a 999-line poem in four cantos, by a poet named John Shade, which is given an intro and an outro and an exhaustive annotation by uh, Shade's self-appointed editor named Charles Kimboat. And the poem itself is clearly a lament for Shade's suicided daughter, but Kimboat forces a connection between the artwork and his own insane perceptions of his life, including the deposed king of Zembla and an assassin dispatched to kill him. So it's Nabokov playing with the the structure of someone who has taken an artwork and is just kind of forcing himself into that artwork, forcing his own interpretations into it when clearly it has nothing to do with the intent of the, of the artist himself, which is very much a theme of this book that we're going to be talking about. Um, a lot of people know the very first line of the, the, the fake poem in the book, the shade poem, which is, I was the shadow of the wax wings slain by the false azure in the window pane, which is a beautiful opening 
Um, but just mentioning that false Azure uh, introduces color right away. And I think that like thematically color, obviously in the burnt orange heresy becomes a big thing. Also, we'll yeah, into that. pale fire and burnt orange heresy. Those are both uh, just the titles are a nice sort of uh, uh, paired together. They're not reflections of each other in some way, but they both evoke fire. Um, and and specifically the color of fire in both of them. Yeah, I'd be thing? really shocked to hear that uh, Williford wasn't thinking about this novel when he wrote Burnt Orange Heresy. Yes, that seems fair, though I always wonder, we'll talk about it when we get into the book, what Williford thinks of serious novels and serious writing and serious art what sure. his relationship yes, to that stuff is uh which i think is a credit to this book that it's it's ambiguous what he thinks and in general uh you know i you and i are both big williford fans and we've read most of his work uh, uh certainly almost all of his fiction so it's not to say this book is unclear taking his his career in total it's a little unclear what he thinks about certain things. He's such a, a playful, dark, frequently cynical, hopeful, funny ironist that a lot of times uh, he's just working in such deliberate counterpoint within his compositions that, you know, would, would he like Pale Fire or not? I honestly don't know. What do you think, John? I, I think he knows it at least, you know, I think he yeah. was aware of it. Yeah. And I think it probably interested him. I don't know if it was high on his literary, uh, you know, uh, favorite list or what, but uh, I think if, if you told me he was completely unaware of it and wrote the burnt orange heresy, I would be genuinely surprised. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be fucking shocked. That's true. Yeah. Um, my aperitif pairing is my last sigh by Louis Bunuel. Uh, the this book is about a surrealist a, a painter an artist who bridges the gap between dadaism and surrealism he's a nihilistic surrealist and um bunuel is referenced in the burnt orange heresy and uh, one of the things that I think is helpful when you read this book, or maybe not even helpful, we can talk about this more, is a sense of art history and the time periods they're talking about and the artists specifically they're talking about, just to have some sort of context for a, a lot of this. You don't want to be like, you know, a school teacher from Duluth completely lost, right? Uh, and one of the things that when I read this book that I sort of wrestle with with it is that because it places, it's a book about uh, art history, it places fake characters in real contexts. And when you do that, you have to nail the real context. You have to absolutely just kill it to death and be perfect in the way you're evoking it. And one of the things that I think about when I read Bird Orange Heresy is the surrealist writings and, and uh, journals and all of those different theorists and poets and all of that. Um, but Louise Bunuel's My Last Sigh, in addition to being the greatest autobiography ever written, if you ask me, is does a really good job of evoking the actual mindset and the actual personalities of these artists. A lot of the surrealists and Dadaists were like put on artists. 
a lot of them, you know, think of Salvador Dali. He talked a load of shit to the press. That was part of the game was saying outrageous things and making sort of ridiculous, uh, provocative statements. And so a lot of the mythology of surrealism is just that. It's a lot of myths that self-built mythology around them and specifically a, a pompous mythology that lampoons taking things seriously. They're constantly taking the piss out of things. And My Last Sigh is a really lovely uh, uh, expression of what that time was actually like. It sort of feels more on the ground uh, and more sincere and more honest than, than maybe necessarily any other versions of that time period are. And I think it's, you know, it's a great book to read just on its own. You should read it outside of the context of the Burden Arch Heresy. But if you just want sort of one thing to be your lodestar to navigate the art history that's being discussed in this book, um, that's a good one, I think. I agree. I could, and I second the uh, opinion that you should read it, whether you know it's in the context of the Burnt Orange Heresy or not, because it is a terrific book. I would Same say goes also for Pale Fire. Yeah, um, I would say too about Boonwell uh, being referenced in in Orange Heresy specifically within the Surrealist movement. Uh, he's perfectly contextualized it, where it's uh, the members of the movement have turned against this fictional artist in the book, and, a, and it notes except Boonwell. And yes. that makes sense because Boonwell was would never, you know, collect with a bunch of people and then make like a political statement as a group or as a movement. You know, he was a very, he, he, he maintained his individuality throughout his career. Yes. And uh, he, was he definitely would not fall for that kind of bullshit. Yeah, he was an emphatic humanist. Uh, is as cynical as he as he could be, and, and nihilistic even as he could be. He he. There's a real human kindness to Boonwell, too, uh, as dark as he can get, and sort of that idea that he's not going to turn his back on on this painter Debaru, uh, is makes sense. Yes, and you know. So I think that's I think that's a, a good thing to read. Do you want to give a a brief overview of the plot of about what we're going to get into? I feel like before we discuss the plot, we need to say up front, this is a very slim book. It's like novella length almost. Uh, we have to discuss spoilers because it's just too short of a book. Yeah. To, once it starts making its twists to not discuss any of the twists. You know, there's a setup and it's probably 40 pages of setup and then it keeps continuously surprising from there. So if you don't want any spoilers, uh, this just, you stop listening, folks, but we're going to discuss it in depth. Yes, please read the book first if you don't want spoilers spoiled for you. Go and cover to cover on this one. Yeah, uh, and you can read it in a weekend. It is a breeze to read. It's a fun book, uh, too. Like, it's not, it's not heavy lifting. So if you have even slight interest uh, in it, just read it now. Yeah, it's the exact opposite of Pale Fire, I should mention, um, yeah. which a lot of people struggle with. Uh, I remember when I read in college, the professor was uh, mentioning the books that, you know, you could do an essay on and giving them one to 10 accessibility ratings. And they, uh, in terms of 10 being the least accessible, like the hardest to get into. And she gave Pale Fire a 10. Who was this professor? This wasn't one of the film studies professors. No, no, no. This was an extra class. Uh, oh, okay. Class, but I, yeah, I can't remember the name. But uh, 
but I immediately thought, ooh, I'll definitely go read that one. I found it a lot easier to get into and read than than that, but I have heard people complain that they it's it's just too too wonky for them. Well, is, it's yeah. yeah, the problem with it is it is that it bounces between the poem and footnotes. Mm-hmm. And lo- trying to decide how to read it, you as a reader have to make a decision about whether you're going to read the poem from stop to start straight through the 999 lines and then go back and read it again but bounce to the footnotes each time or if you read the poem straight through and then read the footnotes straight through just how you want to do it you sort of have to make that decision yourself as a reader and it's, yeah and it's, it's a little bit of legwork <laughs> yeah and the book does not tell you how to make that decision the book does not make it easy one way or the other yeah um but exact opposite for orange heresy it's a very straightforward story uh set over a brief period of time and it's narrated by uh james figueres who is a prominent or a rising uh art critic living in florida who gets a offer from a lawyer who has is has a very impressive art collection uh to interview one of the most reclusive uh modern artists the uh aged and his first name is gonna I don't know Deberu's first De- name. Deberu. He's, Deberu. He's yes. like Dali. You don't need the first name. Yeah, so Deberu is the name of the guy, a French uh, modern uh, artist who is famous for doing basically one one-man show years and years ago before World War II. And his work since then has only been seen by four different critics who have been allowed private access to it and have done articles about them. So he literally is the most inaccessible artist, but one of the most revered. So this lawyer, Cassidy, has managed to convince Deborah to um, move from Europe to Florida. And has, no, he doesn't convince him. It's, it's Deborah. He's, he, he's convinced him to let him, yeah, to let him help him, basically, to, to set him up uh, in this private uh, hut somewhere in Florida, secret place where no one knows where he is. So he basically approaches Figueres and says, if you want to interview this guy, I will tell you where he is. You know, you go down there, you can convince him to give you an interview. It'd be the first interview with him in so many years. Uh, you, you obviously would be a huge, uh, huge rise in his career. But he says, the thing you got to do for me though, is get one of his paintings for me. Yeah. And Cassidy is, is an art collector, but he's also a lawyer and he's been contracted by Deberu's like French legal group to help uh, Deberu emigrate. And one of the things he does is like sets him up with a pseudonym, Eugene V. Debs, who Deberu's never heard of, and also makes him a student working correspondence courses. So he's there, this 90 year old man is there. Uh, or How old is he? 82? How old is Deberu? Up there, yeah. Something. Yeah, he's there as a student. He's on a student visa living in Florida by himself somewhere. And there's like Cassidy's like paying off some kid to do the correspondence courses for him. And that is that is the setup. And that's why Cassidy knows uh, where Deberu is. And he's also given Deberu a bunch of new materials. Part of the... Uh, tantalizing setup as Deberu is that his villa in France burned down several years ago and all of his art, which was only seen by these foreign critics, four critics, has all been lost. 
So he's now there in America. He's set up with an art studio. Cassidy has got him, set him up as a painter, and he started to do new work. And this is Figueres' <laughs> chance to see the art, uh, to see the only existing art by Debaru that no one has ever seen and write an article about it and interview Debaru. And so that is the setup. And the deal he makes with Cassidy, the devil, is he's just got to steal one painting and bring it back. So at first glance, looking at this story, as someone who's read Williford, um, if you've read the Hope Hope Mosley novels, if you've read Cockfighter, if you've read uh, Pickup or any of his other crime books might seem kind of different because obviously it's yeah. dealing with the art world, it's dealing with art criticism. So even though it technically becomes a crime novel later in the story, the setup is this guy figure is telling the story of why he is important and why the, the critic plays this role and why it's important for him to meet this artist and get this interview. Now, even more than pale fire, I would say that the book I'd be hugely shocked that Wilfred wasn't referencing with the story was uh, Jane, uh, Henry James's The Aspirin Papers, which yeah. is the same sort of scenario, which is a, another first-person tale of a publisher who goes to the Venice home of a former lover of the renowned American poet Jeffrey Asburn in order to locate and steal letters, which he supposedly wrote to her, uh, which he keeps hidden from the public. Uh, this old woman, this former lover, Juliana, kind of has is the stand-in for the artist. Um, and then there's also a young woman caught up in the middle of all this, who is Juliana's niece, Miss Tita. And in Burnt Orange Heresy, uh, Figueres has a love interest as well, this young woman who ends up getting caught up in his schemes. Berenice. Yes. So I love this book specifically because, as you know, I love the what I call the absent artist subgenre, yes. which is specifically about a non-artist, a you know, self-proclaimed non-artist, but who works within the art world somehow, either being influenced by an artwork or trying to take advantage of an artwork for his own purposes. And yeah. I think the Aspirin Papers a is a critic, a collector, yeah, an yeah, or a restorer, yeah, somebody yes. who is, as I think uh, Figueres describes himself in, in this, a craftsman, not an artist. Um, gets involved with this, but I think this is one of the more philosophical of this subgenres because it really digs very heavily. And from the very beginning, um, the quote that he uses, um, uh, which is, "Nothing exists. If anything exists, it is, it is incomprehensible. If anything was comprehensible, it would be incommunicable." Which is from uh, Gorgias, the fifth-century sophist, and yeah. he uses those also as the chapter headings. So immediately what Wilfred sets up with this story is why art matters and what the substance of art is. Is art, you know, something that we all engage in and that we all, the kind of expected thing where we go to a museum and we look at this art and we engage with this art, or is it something more abstract? The way that Figueres explains that it is, or he says um, art can only be appreciated if you have someone who really understands it, an expert explain it to you, to who can rep, use references and understand the background and make you appreciate it for what it is. He specifically says that he is uh, doesn't believe in the autotelic, right? That he doesn't believe in a work that's complete by itself without reference set. Yeah, that's just a biography. 
that you need to read a giant piece on an artist before you can look at a painting and appreciate it for what it is. So there's a lot of the story dedicated to this idea that this guy firmly believes that the critic is as important as as an artist in appreciating yeah. an artwork. But, and that's, and it's also uh, interesting too. It reminded me of the Kundera quote that I go to a lot of that. Nothing is uh, more necessary for the survival of great art than great criticism. But also at the beginning of this book, this book is about the, it was written in 1971 and it's about the emerging uh, Florida gold coast, Miami art scene, right? Which is now a sort of uh, um, set uh, traditional uh, milieu. You know, we mentioned Velvet Buzzsaw, uh, which takes place at the um, at uh, the Miami Art Basel scene, uh, and this is a um, it's like an annual art fair, and this book takes place sort of at the burgeoning moment of that of when Miami as a weirdly important part of American modern art is emerging, but specifically as a place where things get sold, where art gets sold. It's not necessarily uh, the, the part of art basil is all about style and being stylish and being hip and being modern and being cutting edge and like the new stuff. And selling the new stuff to rich people who are hip. You know, that's a big part of the idea. And Figueres, uh, uh, navigating that world and finding his role as a critic, as a serious thinker and somebody who contributes and thinks seriously about art within a very um, commercialized milieu. And that's one of the interesting things about this character too. At the beginning, it's just been set up as a guy who's going to steal art. He's sort of incorruptibly uh, ethical in his um, approach to being a critic, that he avoids relationships with artists. He doesn't take anything for free. He doesn't, he turns down all of the uh, per diems and, and, and perks and bonuses that are sort of entitled to him as an artist because he wants to be able to analyze and criticize uh, without bias, uh, which is fascinating considering where the story goes, that he is a, a purist in a lot of ways and that he seems to be very sincerely committed to what he's doing, although fusing it to such a commercialized space, you know, of the Miami art scene, it takes on a weirdly ambitious tone that he's a purist in terms of his ambition, right? Absolutely. And I think it's a fascinating character uh, just from the start. And I think that's one of the things that's really special about this book, especially when you compare it to something like Buzzsaw, a Velvet Buzzsaw, or to go back to Neil LeBute, to your friends and neighbors, where critics exist and modern artists exist in a lot of art just to be hammered for being pretentious jackasses. Like if you have modern art in your pop movie and your pop novel, nine times out of 10, it's just to like, look how ridiculous this is. My kid could have painted that and hear this completely pretentious explanation for why this is actually good. This crap that looks like finger paint and taking shots at it, you know, and that's not, 
precisely what Velvet Buzzsaw does, but it's part of it. You know, the fundamental ridiculousness of what's going on is part of it. And this book eschews that. This book manages to, in an interesting way, without being on the side of these intellectuals, it also is not just trying to score cheap points at them. It's not just parroting them and taking cheap shots and just serving up the the simplest target imaginable, the like sitcom favorite of like, you know, Kevin James goes to an art gallery and he's like looking at a, you know, a, a fucking urinal and somebody's like, no, that's actually a urinal. And it's, ah, ha, ha, you can't tell the difference. You know, that kind of joke is the way a lot of this shit exists in art. That's yeah. not what Williford's doing. No, Figueres definitely is somebody who knows his shit. Yes. And, and Williford goes out of his way to make the shit not completely empty, not completely ridiculous, not existing to be lampooned. It is not, this book is not a satirical book, even what it is a thoughtfully critical book. Yeah. But it's interesting how he is corrupt in certain ways that he doesn't acknowledge. One of no the first question. Things, well, yeah, well, obviously it becomes more obvious as we go along. But just as an example, when he first uh, ends up meeting uh, Deperu, Deperu cites his article that he wrote about a California artist who would um, was an abstract artist. He enjoyed doing, you know, kind of more surrealist stuff but he to make money he would have to paint portraits of rich people and he hated having to do it so as sort of revenge he would paint a fly on the person uh which is a trump loyal a trump loy trump loy trump loy symbolism of sin without redemption basically he is dooming the subject to hell uh just as his own little joke and figueres has written this article about him that he doesn't consider you know one yeah. of his more important works the idea is he paints a portrait and then he paints a photo photorealistic fly that appears to be sitting on the portrait right yes, that it's right. supposed to look like an actual fly that if you look at it you reach out and you go to hit the fly not realizing it's part of the painting right but so this is uh you know something that his subjects don't know the meaning of it um, artists know it, but they don't mention it to anybody because they don't want him to get in trouble. And Figueres has basically revealed this in his article. He, he mentions that he, he thinks it's important for people to understand why he, these portraits are so boring and why he clearly isn't invested in them. So he has to give this anecdote about him adding the fly. And it doesn't come out and say it, but obviously you think, well, what the fuck? He just blew up this guy's spot you know yeah. he just totally he called just him out this guy yeah. yeah so this guy's not going to be able to do portraits anymore once people know that he's adding this fly as an insult to them more or less you know yeah whereas before when people would buy the portraits they would take it uh they would eventually notice the fly of course and but they would take it as a kind of an amusing detail and they'd say to their guests or people looking at it do you notice anything novel about this painting you know mm. oh that fly is real uh and it's specifically the analysis which what i like about it the idea that it's sin and condemning them to hell that is figueres's analysis that is not something he's told by the artist you don't necessarily get the sense that that is what the artist means by it that this is 
something uh, that Figueres is reading into the painting that's incredibly destructive towards the artist. And it's exactly what you're saying where uh, this book is very interested in what an artist's role is, right? And specifically what artists project uh, onto their work versus what critics project onto their work and the way artists intend for their work to be taken versus the way critics take them and uh, and contort them. Again, that's why Pale Fire is a great frame of reference for it, which is the, the classic... Uh, critic does not understand the thing they are criticizing. Yes. Uh, uh, thing. Uh, one thing I do want to mention, you mentioned the Trompe fly. And I said before this book for this book to work and it has to nail everything. Um, and that's why something like Velvet Buzzsaw ultimately doesn't work. When you look at like the artworks themselves, like the like Patriot bot is like, I don't fucking know. Like, that's just dumb. I don't think that would actually be a phenomenon. You know what I mean? It's a bad art idea. Not just that it's uh, a realistically bad art idea. It's like a bad concept for an artwork that might be successful. It's phony. It's just not believable. It's cheeseball. It it just, he doesn't nail it with that, with the Patriot bot, right? Mm -hmm. This book has really cool art ideas. When they describe uh, Debrew's one-man show, which was called Number One or No One, N-O period one, right? In English, even though he was French, it was pointed out. Uh, The actual description of like this one-man show that people would line up around to see uh, is really cool. You know, and it's not necessarily like mind blowing. Uh, The idea is that there was an upstairs studio set up above our, uh, an upstairs uh, space set up above Deborah's studio. He was a framer right? That was what he did. That's how he knew all of everybody, you know, from Man Ray to Samuel Beckett is because he would frame things and sort of got into that world. I guess that wouldn't mean why he knows Samuel Beckett, but you know, Mondrian, there's just like a bunch of people listed in in there. Um, And above his workshop, his framing workshop, he set up this little studio, which is almost impossibly dim light with no windows. Uh, And you come in one at a time and enter into it. And as your eyes adjust, you realize there's a frame on one wall. And inside the frame, you can see the nail that's been driven into the wall where this frame is hanging and a big crack in the wall itself. And it almost looks like a mountain landscape as your eyes are adjusting the crack, climbing up the frame beside the frame. And then you realize that there's nothing inside of it and you stay as long or as little as you'd like. That is like a a cool idea for an exhibition, like period. Like that's, that is a lot of movies that make or books that are about artworks, about fake fictional artworks that set the world on fire in some way, dodge it and never describe the artwork. Like your friends and neighbors, you don't see the painting they're looking at and discussing with each other. You know, you never see it. And there's a lot of things where you never see the painting. You never see the movie that everybody that's been lost to time that everybody's been trying to see. You never hear the song that drives people insane, right? Yeah. This thing goes out on a limb by actually describing the one man show and then nails it by having it be like, that is a cool idea for a show. That is a cool thing that you can see being uh, meaningful in its time. 
right? Yeah, it's very cool. It actually reminds me of Mr. Turner, uh, JMW Turner's gallery yes. that has the very specific lighting scheme where people come in and have to privately come in and view it. Um, I should mention too that the No.1 painting in the original hardback of this uh, novel, it's you know represented on the cover and it's kind of cool because the new movie, this isn't really a spoiler or anything, um, is it's not mentioned at all. You know, they don't go into the background of that painting, but it does have a cameo uh, late in the movie when they're showing, you know, pic- paintings of his, you know, picture posters of his painting. You see that, that, that same image of the no dot one in there. Yes. Yeah. And I would say the other, the other like cool art idea is the photo he takes of Debru where he manages to, by using the flash on his Polaroid, he has Debru pose with a, when he finally goes to interview him, uh, he has Debru pose with a newspaper uh, and pretending to be reading the newspaper and uses his flash. His flash causes the newspaper to catch on fire as the photograph is being taken. So he gets this photograph of Debru reading a flaming newspaper with no expression on his face whatsoever. Well, he lights the newspaper with his cigarette. Right. Oh, does he? Yeah. I to thought get he the did fire some... started. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he did something with the flash. But, but then uh, takes the picture right before uh, Deborah realizes what's happening. So he looks like just a guy standing there reading a newspaper that's burst into flame. Yeah. And that's a cool idea. You it's can picture that cool photo, idea. And photo and be like, oh, that sounds fucking awesome. And it's the one thing, too, that Figueres does that really impresses the painter, you know, at this point, he's already turned down, you know, he's, he's been too elusive to interview. He's turned down his request to see his new work. Uh, so figure Figueres is like, well, at least let me take this picture by getting interested in this Polaroid camera, I guess that uh, he's interested in and taking this picture, which, you know, after claiming again and again, Hey, I'm not an artist. I'm not an artist. He does this very artistic thing that yeah. really impresses Deborah that's a really great scene. Yeah. And even, you know, and even the descriptions of articles he's written and sort of the jargon that of, of Figueres' critical work is pretty spot on. He's famous for having written a piece, uh, I believe it's a full book called Art and the Preschool Child. That's about the development of uh, artistic ability in preschool children and how the way motor skills develop uh, when kids need to be start uh, learning how to create art. Uh, and it sounds, and like I've, you know, I went to fucking art school. I've read a lot of goddamn books like that. You yeah. know what I mean? That are sort of a mix of scientific study and like art history, you know, and sort of like, and bullshit, bullshit sociological, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like well, he, illumination. Fan- yeah. I don't want to say that it's just like a fantasy, but it, that sort of sociological extrapolation of more concrete ideas and take sort of a fantastical realm and he considers the book a failure because it was completely ignored by the art community but child psychologists loved it (laughs) yes yes and it's sort of its success with a certain group proved that its theory was incorrect to him right that that like that the book was accepted by certain people means that it's a failure yeah and uh and so You know, the first time, John, you and I were talking about this, that before I reread this, I had said to you at one point, and I can't believe this, that this wasn't one of my favorite Willifords. And I feel like when I read it before, when I was more in the art world, when I was working as a programmer and more in the world that this is depicted, um, I felt like, does it 
nail it. And there's still a few things where it's like one of the only books uh, Figueres, or not Figueres, Debrew has in his new Florida house is Godard on Godard. And there's a few times where things feel like placeholders with like the most famous artist name in there, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, but I don't know. But reading it this time, I read it and was like, oh, is that even his copy of Godard on Godard? Or is that something that Cassidy bought for him when he was like filling up this house with crap so that Deborah could live there? You know, yeah. it's not clear to me this time. It's clear to me that there's a worn copy of Heidi that's Deborah's, you know, which <laughs> yeah. is a great, which is a great detail because that's the kind of thing in the book that the surrealists actually love. If you read my last side, Sai, you'll realize that like the art that's really affecting to like Boonwell isn't necessarily uh, difficult modernist art like that. <coughs> well, you know, um, that Boonwell had a contentious relationship with the French New Wave people, even though they loved him, that that there's evidence that that he did not uh, extend the same feeling their way, you know? Um, so I think that that's, I, you know, this time reading it, it really felt um, like if, if it's not perfect, it's amazing how close it gets, you know? And yeah. I think by it not being perfect, uh, there's something about it that, that, that feels very um, like it didn't, it didn't matter, but I think it gets incredibly close. I think it's an interesting comparison to something like Midsommar, which feels like it was made by fucking graduate students. You know, it just, it just reminded me of being back in art school so much, both the people on screen, but also the film itself you know, and it has, this book has a nice distance from what it's talking about that I think works to is it its advantage that Williford feels outside of all of this world entirely, um, which is appealing now. And he's outside of it. And again, paired with, he's not just being critical of it. Yeah, there are some ambiguities of character that I imagine could be deal breakers for some readers. Uh, with Debiru especially, I mean, beyond his personal library, um, just the way that he seems at the same time completely ahead of Figueres um, in their first meeting, you know, and uh, has the complete control of the conversation. It just seems like a guy like you're not going to get him, you know, like he is just going to be in front of you no matter what. But at the same time, you know, kind of giving him these kind of pure, almost childlike attributes. Like, Well, that's the first twist is what he's actually like. Yeah, like wanting to go down to the the drive-in to see movies every night. To see Bowery Boys pictures. To see Bowery Boys and cartoons and to buy a snow cone. uh, And loving TV dinners, right? Uh, Yeah, exactly. But this is actually, this is why I love this book is I think its depiction of him is perfect. Mm Mm-hmm is absolutely perfect. And the idea that he's this legendary figure, right? And then you meet him and he's like more like a regular guy. Uh, And what it reminded me of is uh, so much reminded me of, I had a friend, I had a friend, he's still a friend of mine, but he worked for Jean-Claude and Christo when they were, uh, he was a documentarian or worked for a production company when Albert Mazels was making a documentary about the gates being put up in Central Park, right? And so this friend of ours, Eric Frender, uh, got to spend a lot of time with Jean-Claude and Christo, right? 
Mm-hmm. Famous, they are like the the uh, uh, they're these environmental landscape artists known for like valley curtain and running running fence and and uh, the umbrellas. They do these massive landscape spanning abstract pieces of art, and they're sort of like uh, the kind of artists that symbolize um, if you don't like art that you feel like is pretentious crap, you will hate this stuff right? If you're the kind of person who's like, I don't get it. It's just a giant piece of fabric, you know, like they just wrapped up those walkways. Their art will drive you crazy, right? But it's Mm -hmm. also like beautiful and interesting. Well, one of the things that I was so shocked to hear from Eric was they're making, they're putting up the gates in Central Park, right? Where do they go for lunch every day? Do you know this? McDonald's. Hooters. (laughs) <laughs> There's a Hooters, it was on 57th Street, right by Central Park. And they would go over because they love the Hooters chicken wings. Jean-Claude and Cristo, that's what they wanted to eat, was Hooters chicken wings. And, and it just feels like they're legendary older artists. You know what I mean? Like they've got to be in their, their 70s by now. I believe Jean-Claude actually died uh, a, a while ago. Um, probably like 10 years ago now, I, I think she died. But Christo's got to be in, in his 80s. Um, and they loved Hooters. And there was a lot of Christo in uh, Williford's depiction of Deboru to me. Yeah. He's got the t-shirt with the alligator on. Exactly. <laughs> got the polo shirt. Uh, so we should get into then this this section of the book, the second part of the book where he... Uh, where Figueres is there at, at Dipperu's and he's been denied. I want to make sure to talk about Berenice a little bit. Yeah. Um, but he's been denied by uh, Dipperu who sends, politely sends him off and, and, and doesn't let him see his, go into his locked gallery, which is in the house. Yeah. Dipperu gets impatient for him to leave. He wants to go see movies. You got to scram fuck face. Yeah. Um, but claims that the current work that he's doing is not suitable for, uh, critical analysis, basically, and that, yeah, he's, it's not, and that he's not interested in that. Right. So, um, again, Figueres has brought Berenice along, who is a school teacher from Duluth, um, who is an interesting character, an interesting addition to this book. The first time I read it, I remember thinking, oh, she shoved in there because a book like this needs a woman somehow. You know, yeah. needs like a woman who's going to give it kind of like a little bit of a hard edge in terms of, you know, the, like a sex scene uh, who's described as being very tall and very, uh, you know, physically yeah, she endowed. Got big, she's got a thick ass and big boobs and yeah. sexy. And um, but her character gets more and more interesting as I, you know, every time I revisit this book because it seems like, Vigaris obviously thinks that she's an idiot in terms of like her understanding of the art world and just sort of interpretation and things like that. He basically brings her along and he's planning on like, how am I going to get rid of this chick ultimately? Like, how am I going to, you know, break it off? He tries to break up with her. The book opens with them broken up. Right. That he's sort of thrown her out. (laughs) Yeah. It basically brings her along out of convenience to help with the travel and also figures that, uh, Devereux would be maybe more receptive to him if he had a good-looking woman with him when he knocked on his door. Yeah, as a Frenchman, he won't be able to turn down. As a Frenchman. Yeah. Um, 
but Berenice, I, I mean, I think obviously Williford intends her to be sort of the most pure character in this story in terms of just that when we spend all this time in Figueres' mind and through his narration and he is justifying what he's doing and maybe he's a little self-delusional uh, as he takes more and more steps towards criminal activity, she's the one who's going to say, what have you done? What This is... This is unacceptable. This is unbelievable that you've that you've done this. She's the character who's going to basically represent that. Um, the movie, and again, I won't spoil anything, but you know, has to do a few interesting character twists and turns to make her kind of relevant to a more modern setting. But being at this particular time, coming in the end of the '60s, the early '70s, uh, Berenice, you know, is you know consider is objectified by Figueres and even Deborah is a little bit rude to her saying, you know, she has good, you know, childbearing, a good childbearing body. Yeah. And, and mentions to her TV dinners are even better invention yeah. for wives than, than television. Well, she asked, doesn't she specifically ask if she can see the paintings because Deborah says, no, Figueres can't see them. Jaime can't see the figure. Jaime can't see the, the, yeah. uh, paintings and she says well maybe i could see them and his response is like ah you have great childbearing hips you're gonna have a ton of babies yeah it's basically what he responds to that which is pretty cold yes um yeah yeah no it's not it's not a book that's particularly nice to her and she's somebody again one of the things that williford like nabokov is so good at doing is keeping us in a character's mind but reminding us without hammering it uh but still having it be shocking of the split between what's happening in reality and what happens in this guy's mind the unreliable narrator and she has a tendency to bring that out where he thinks he's being clever but she understands perfectly what he's trying yes. to do where yes, exactly. he thinks he's saying something complicated and she asks a question that cuts through right to the heart of it and he keeps comparing her to the little old lady in uh in hemingway's uh death in the afternoon mm-hmm. right? Uh, who uh, who doesn't uh, understand bullfighting and ask these meaningless questions? And his and his analysis of what the meaning of death in the afternoon is is pretty pretty suspect, but <laughs> but not least. but not but not terrible. Again, not any different than what you would read from professional academics. Not a um uh uh not an outlandish thing not so ridiculous that if you aren't familiar with the book that you would that it would set off some kind of um signal in your head like huh that just sounds like he's saying something fundamentally ridiculous like pale fire you read pale fire and you know the critic uh that Cambode is out of his goddamn mind and what he's saying is ridiculous you never really know that with yeah. this well, Figueres, you know, even uh, accuses the last person to do a piece on Deberu as putting everything he sees into a highly subjective pattern, whether it fits or not. Yeah. Which is, you know, obviously what Figueres does himself. Yeah. Um, but which... I think Williford would also say everybody does that. I don't think he's being condemned for being subjective. Right. But the fact that Figueres actually calls out another critic as being guilty of that without yes. recognizing that he himself does that or critics in general do that, you know, I think is sort of the, another one of the interesting ambiguities of this book. Um, so anyway, we should get into the fact that he, what happens 
They drop uh, Deboru off at the drive-in to see his movie uh, as it's getting later at night. It's interesting, too, I, I just, just point out that Philifred, obviously, one of the great things about his books is his appreciation and knowledge of geography in Florida. Yeah. And all the buildings and the neighborhoods, the different areas. And here, the I think... The kinds of roads, the kind of trees. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a great... There, there are actually two really great foreshadowings in this book, one of them being uh, geographical. The first one, obviously, when he's talking about... Berenice applying her makeup and saying that there was too much orange in her lipstick, but perhaps the slight imperfection was the needed touch that made her lovely as a whole, which sets up what's going to happen at the end. Um, And is also such like a perfect critic way of thing. You know mm -hmm, what I mean? Of course, yeah. That's the kind of thing a critic would say, and they really would. That's like a cliche. That's like a critical cliche at this point. Absolutely. But the geographical foreshadowing is that when they go to um, Deborah's home, he misses it at first and has to turn around at the drive-in. And so you have this giant, big, empty screen in front of him. And what is it, you know, a giant screen, but a big, empty canvas, right, without anything on it? Yeah. That sets up what happens because they drop him off at the movies. He decides he's going to go back, break into the house, Yes, he sees he sees where Debru leaves his keys. Right. So he realizes he can just go back and get the keys. He's just going to get the key. He's going to get into the gallery. He's going to get this painting for Cassidy. At the same time, have full access to all of Debru's artwork for himself, take pictures, whatever he needs to do, but has a, a nice big window where he can just go in there and... Uh, do the thing now again this is one not of the, a literal window a window of time a window of time right window. yes um another ambiguity with Deborah here is it almost seems crazy that he wouldn't suspect that figueras would turn right back around and break into his house after he makes oh really you think living. so i always think about it because it's such a big show of hey drive me down to the movies and drop me off i'm going to be there for you know four for three movies and for a few cartoons and i'm going to have headphones on almost everything he says sets up like i will definitely not be at my house (laughs) yeah Um, it's, it's just something to think about i don't know if that's you know on purpose or not but at any in any rate figueres um against the uh protestations of berenice heads back to the house drops her off uh, just off the side of the road, gets yeah, into the has house. her look, looking playing guard at the end of the driveway. She's right. running if if she sees Debrew coming back. Right, um, gets into the house, gets into the gallery, and is stunned to find all the canvases are blank. There's nothing on any of them. The art supplies are untouched. There's Nothing like has a been desk done. set up. There's a neat yeah. stack of magazines. There's some books. There's just stack after stack in this white room under fluorescent light, this windowless room of nothing. Mm-hmm. And his immediate interpretation, and I guess this is something that, you know, we're all, we can all sit back and think about and try to decide if he's right or not, is that Deboru never painted a painting in his life. Yes. He literally has the mentality of a painter, of an artist, that he has the desire to be an artist, but that he literally goes uh, to this room in the morning, sits on a stool, and for four hours just stares at this blank canvas, not having any idea what he wants to paint. And that everything that's been written about him has been a fraud. You know, that people have not actually seen his paintings, that they have just manufactured these ideas about him. And he, in fact, has never done anything. 
But it's this great idea where he says, oh no, Deborah is a slave to hope, that he hopes each day an idea will come to him, that he hopes each day the inspiration will be there, that he believes that Deborah really does go and work for four hours each day, which means just sitting at that desk trying to wait for it to happen. And for me, as somebody who creates art, this is a really like tragically beautiful idea. This scene is like the knockout scene in the book to me. When he gets in there and there's nothing in there, all of Williford's descriptions, the amassing of details, Figurus's reaction, uh, Williford's own language, it's just so phenomenal. I think it's as good, this sequence is as good as anything Williford ever wrote. Oh, absolutely. It's incredible. Uh, and it's the, heartbreaking. Uh, oh, I feel yeah. so much like Deborah when I read that. <laughs> I feel so much like just the, the the art you can't even make. Yeah. So there's that and there's that understanding. And then there's also Figueres kind of doing these mental gymnastics to convince himself that, well, if that's the case, there's no reason that I could not paint a painting and credit it to Devereux and write about that painting because yeah. if, because give it goes that back to that painting to Cassidy, give it to Cassidy because it all goes back to that, uh, that opening quote, right? Nothing exists. You yeah. know, he's now he com- completely convinced that everything that he's ever written about, you know, it, it's, it's, it becomes a matter of context over substance. Like there's, well, it's you, art literally doesn't exist. Right. The critic. Right. Literally doesn't exist. Because all he can do is write about something that does not exist, but he yeah. can bring it to life by writing about it. He can make it an actual thing. And that there is a cool artistry in creating artwork out of nothing. Yeah. But again, again, I don't think Williford means this as like, aren't critics deluded? Isn't this dumb? He's not trying to score cheap points. There's a real artistic existential panic to this of like, it's definitely unquestionably true that criticism is a necessary part of art and that critics transmit in some way the meaning and value of your art to audiences that they do and that criticism is really important in that way and maybe the art doesn't even fucking matter i think he has a like tragic existential panic about that idea i don't think williford's idea is oh look at these idiot critics thinking they're more important than they are it's goddamn what if the art i make charles Wilfear, just doesn't fucking matter what if it literally doesn't fucking matter and that the critic could do their job even without me? <laughs> yes. Yes. And at the same time, because it is literally a decision to create something out of nothing and to perpetuate this fraud by pretending that everything he's ever heard or studied or researched about this painter who never was a painter is valid and that he can actually take it and use it and make it mean something. So it's this kind of desperation on his part. that's interesting. This kind of criminal uh, enterprise that he suddenly decides upon, but you're right. It's, it's interesting that it, 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 it's like pale fire. Like you said, where it's, you know, he's finding interesting parallels and connections and those parallels and connections while not accurate, create another art form that's interesting um so he sets about creating this painting he steals one of the blank canvases 
and uh, a lot of the paint to, you know, in, in case anyone does any kind of technical Checks analysis yeah. and, you know, can go back and find out and writes about the painting first, decides what the painting's going well, to Well, what be. else does he do before he leaves? Oh, yes. He also sets the, ga- uh, the, the art house on fire. Yeah, he burns down like what happened before the Florida villa gets burned down this time. Right. To cover his tracks and also to make sure that his painting will be the one the one Deberu uh, De- painting available because obviously the rest burned down in this other fire again. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so he he creates the painting first by thinking about what he's going to write about and what it means that Deborah came to America. And I, and I would say that his ideas that he puts into the painting that he creates, which he titles the bird Orange charity, um, are really insipid. <laughs> like the idea yes. of like the American flag and the French flag merging and, you know, the Florida sun, um, and all these things, you know, yes. standing for like his fading years is perfect. Incredibly. Yeah. yeah. It's incredibly dumb. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't. Again, I don't think it's taking easy shots or anything. I just think that you know, no, saying, no, yeah, yeah. That that's that's the kind of like constructive mind at work. Not the he's not an artist. Like he's not an artist. Exactly. He's a critic. So Deborah's one man show sounds really fascinating. Figueres's idea sounds insipid. I think that's entirely true, and I think that's where Berenice, who has the best line in the book. She, he goes to the hotel room and he's actually making this painting and she comes in because he's cracked his door because of the, the air conditioning and the heat aren't working right so he can't get the right temperature. She steps in and when she sees the painting, she says, oh, James, you painted that awful painting. Yeah. You know? And you just know her reaction to you're like, of course it's awful. This whole thing has sounded terrible and he doesn't know how to paint. Of course it's awful. Of course anybody could see it's awful. But that's also an interesting commentary on Williford's part of like audiences can actually see. They don't necessarily need critics to mediate. Anybody can see a bad painting, you know? And Mm -hmm. that's actually true that if you put a school teacher from Duluth in front of a painting, a lot of the times they will go, this is good and this is bad. And it will line up very closely with the critics. That's actually true. That- That's why it's so perfect that Figueres yeah. does the, you know, creates the process backwards that he writes about a non-existent painting first and then needs a painting to go with that context. You know, that it's, there's no substance. It's just the context creates the substance. Yeah. And so people are only going to appreciate this painting at all if they read his words and say, oh, I get it now. I see it. Yeah. Um, what it reminds me of, have you heard of the author F. Glynplain McIntyre? No. Um, not a lot of people know him. He wrote this really good first novel called Woman Between the Worlds, uh, which I first heard of because Harlan Ellison talked about it on his show in the 90s. Uh, very good fantasy novel. Really interesting. Uh, I want to know more about this guy. It turns out he was kind of a psycho who ended up relevant to this story, burning himself to death in his Brooklyn apartment. Um, But he would post hundreds of reviews on IMDb. uh, A lot of them on silent films that had long thought to be lost, like a lot of lost John Ford films and a lot of lost silent comedies. So, and these reviews were like really well-written and really insightful and poetic and made you see these movies and so people started writing to him saying, this is amazing. How did you see this film? And he would say, oh, I know the daughter of this guy in Australia 
who let yeah. me watch at her farm. You know, you'd have all these ridiculous excuses. And then of course they eventually figured out this guy was full of shit and he was crazy. Yeah. He actually had not seen these films, but he was writing these IMDb reviews, uh, you know, making up scenes and, and images in his head that he yeah. imagined these films. You, you are spoiling my dessert, but go on. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so that's something that I think about a lot. I think it's actually a very cool idea to, you know, write about films that don't exist or artworks that don't exist. Yeah. So in that way, well, I agree with you that what Figueres does is in itself kind of an artwork. Yes. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't even know if what he does is an artwork or not, but the, um, the final, the movie, the final part of this movie it moves to is when it becomes more of a regular crime novel is that he realizes, you know, Berenice has seen this. She's just going to get in the way. He drives her out into the swamp and kills her with a tire iron. And it's completely horrifying, the scene that happens. Yeah, and he finds her yeah, after he's done it all. And he gets lost out in the swamp, too. He gets back to the car, and he realizes he's hit her so hard it sliced her fingers off in a defensive blow. And a pair, a pair of her fingers are just stuck in the car still. And it's even in this moment, it doesn't go too far with this character. Uh, and one of the things that I really like about the book is that after he has all of his critical success, he achieves everything he wants as an art critic, he goes and uh, he says that someday hopefully I can look at these fingers. He wraps them up in a handkerchief, keeps them in his dresser without, without guilt or fear. And when he looks at them without guilt or fear, he goes and turns himself in to the police. And he's not a total psychopath or he's not uh, uh, unable to feel anything. Uh, I just love the, the ending of it where he's clearly carrying around all kinds of crazy things that he's not expressing even to himself and that mm -hmm. his value system is still opaque even after we've spent the entire uh, novel inside the mind of this very articulate person his value system is still extremely opaque and the times we do get to see it it's mainly and again more foreshadowing he'd never knew his dad it's this made-up dad he has in his mind you know mm -hmm. who's very hard on him you know yeah, even his, um, you know, he's Puerto Rican. His mother's Puerto Rican, but he no, he's Puerto Rican, and his mom is uh, is Scotch Irish. Okay, the dad is Puerto Rican. Sorry. Yes, um, but the dad is light skinned Puerto Rican, so he gets his uh, reddish blonde hair from his dad. Right, and right. His dark right. features from his mom. So at any rate, he refuses to speak Spanish, and he's. I think he has. Blonde, doesn't he dye his hair blonde? Is that what happens? He has like lighter curly hair. Okay, yeah. So he's kind of, you know, created this new persona for himself where he's kind of, you know, taken away that part of his background, which is another thing that Deborah kind of gives him a hard time about, you know, where he's, you know, yeah. says, would you prefer to speak in Spanish? And then he points out his hair. Uh, so it's something that he's kind of uh, to his face saying, you know, you're sort of a made up person. You're sort of someone who has fictionalized his own biography. Yes. But again, I feel like everybody does that. Everybody invents themselves. Deborah himself, of course, does that. Of you course. Know? Yeah. biography is entirely fictionalized. Or maybe I like that Figueres is certain that the other paintings never existed. But of course, we're not. The book doesn't say that in third person omniscient voice ever. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm excited. I, 
I'm excited for you to see the movie because they take a completely different take on it. Oh, interesting. I yeah. am definitely interested in, in seeing the movie. And I'm excited that the movie's good, even though you say it's, it's very different. Well, I would say that just real quick, um, obviously to kind of make it the kind of movie it is that they turned it into uh, a European thriller. So they kind of lose the Williford element kind yeah. of immediately. But if you've seen the double hour, it's almost an extension of that film. Uh, their take on Berenice is almost like the, the female protagonist from that movie moved into this film. So, yeah. they, you know, they kind of make changes. So it's not, it's not, if I had made the film, I wouldn't have done it that way, mm-hmm. but it, it's an interesting approach to it. Yeah. Um, before we move on to desserts, I do want to say one thing about this book is that um, I don't, if you haven't read any Williford, I don't think this is the place to start. I think that this is a book that gets better the more you know Williford, right? And just sort of, uh, it's deeper. Um, you know, we were just talking about uh, Figueres being uh, Puerto Rican. Race is something that runs in a very subtle way through all of uh, Williford's work. You have the, the, the painter in Sideswipe. You have... Um, uh, Figueres here you have in one of his novels that I don't even want to spoil it it's a spoiler to even mention it there's a twist related a, a major twist related to the race of one of the characters uh, this is something that runs through his work in a subtle way you know the even in uh, sideswipe it's uh, a lot of it uh, but I think that you might not even notice how race plays a factor in this book. If you haven't read other Williford books where he talks about the Cubans in Miami and he talks about the Haitians in Miami and he talks about mixed race people and the ways in which they both merge and are rejected by uh, Miami culture and by white culture in Miami. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a subtle thing in this book. Uh, But if you've read his other work, it, it definitely stands out uh, in that way with it. And also his ideas on art, you know, um, in Understudy for Death, we talked about the, the short story writer that the main character writes. It's hard not to think of that depiction of this guy who lives in a tiny one bedroom apartment in Florida and writes a single story every single day, right? And each week, one of the five he writes will maybe be good enough to publish. And once a month, he might write something that's okay. That's okay. And he never writes anything good. But every day he goes and writes. And that's what his life is as an artist. And he's contrasted in the novel to a guy who has been working on a play for years and yes able to write it hasn't been able to finish it exactly that just keeps ballooning up to ludicrous size and getting torn back down and reconnoitered and all of that sort of thing yeah and or um and those sort of ideas about art again with the the artist in sideswipe who does these sort of crude primitivist drawings that are contrasted in this book one of the art shows that he goes to at the beginning figueres it's a uh, an american painter who's gone down and painted scenes from haiti versus uh local uh, Haitian artists, you know, uh, un, untrained Haitian artists. And it's a show that makes the American guy look like a dipshit, you know, is basically the idea of the, of the show. Yeah. Uh, even though the American guy doesn't, doesn't understand that his, uh, 
you know, trained scholarly depiction of these scenes is going to look completely phony in comparison to the uh, the Haitian artwork. But again, Figueres points out that the Haitian artwork is not that fucking great on its own either, that most of it is eminently forgettable on its own. And so Williford's idea about what it means to be a real artist, right? And again, in Sideswipe, the Haitian artist who is not very talented is compared with this old man uh, who's joined the same criminal gang as him who used to paint the uh, the sort of racing stripes on the cars on the assembly line in Detroit, and he can paint a perfectly straight line. And everybody is blown away by it. The artist is blown away by his ability to paint a perfectly straight line with one brush stroke every single time. And that's an amazing scene in that book. Um, and it's a nice echo, too, of uh, mentioning in, in the, uh, Burnt Orange Heresy, uh, the man who couldn't, they say they can't, he couldn't draw a straight line in the sand with a stick and yet yeah. he became a successful architect. Yes. Yes, exactly. Is what is, what do we mean by somebody being a real artist is something that Williford clearly turns over in his mind a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I do believe in artworks being totalities into themselves. So I don't talk a lot about biography, but it's interesting uh, to think of Williford who didn't have his big success in life until he was in his sixties when the Miami blues hit and became like a big hit uh, and spawned a whole series. He was late in life. And I am sure, and he wrote a lot of little novels that had a certain amount of success that were like mass market prime paperbacks that he didn't get paid much money to write. And he taught at a community college and did not seem to really love uh, his students down there. (laughs) Uh, And so when you talk about real or fake artists, in these books, what's a what's a real artist? What's a phony? What's a pretender? What's a, a a truthful artist? What's a sincere artist? I'm not sure he classifies himself with the truthful ones. I think he probably felt like a failure most of his career, or at best, a mild success. Who the best you can do is write five short stories a week, and one of them is publishable. And maybe someday you'll write something that's good, but you'll never write anything that's great. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but is that truer than the guy who works really hard to perfect a great artwork, who sits there in his office day after day waiting for that one great idea? You know, is he actually the more true artist? And I think that I think that's unresolved for Williford, uh, especially if you consider it in the context of his own life. Is whatever success he had as a writer were meager before Miami Blues. Yeah, and then after Miami Blues, he died almost immediately. Yeah, he wrote a few more books and then passed away. Yeah, so this is this is a fantastic book, but I, I, I agree with you that. I would recommend this it. book is so fucking good. I would recommend it as the first Wilford to dig into, but it's uh, one you definitely got to get around to. If yeah, if it's it like the third one you read, you'll be good. Oh, and and another web thinking about race. I didn't even mention the Black Mass of uh, of uh, Brother, Springer, Brother Springer, which is a great similar thing where it's like how is truth created, where it's essentially about a con artist who is trying to help a black church organize uh, a boycott in the civil rights era. And he's a con artist, but he starts doing real work. And that is the same thing here where uh, the idea generates the reality 
as much as anything, where the sort of critical con artist idea is creating reality around him. And how much does it matter that he doesn't intend to do good? You know, that he doesn't intend to actually help the people, that his plan is to rip them off and fuck the hot ones and get the hell out of there, mm-hmm. you know, when it actually starts working. You know, like how much, what does your intention matter? Again, what does an artist's intention matter? And how much are people artists who create themselves every day? And to tie that to, again, to, uh, to Fred Fringer, whose whole idea is trying to create a new self for himself at all times, to not just be the dangerous ex-con, but maybe he's a cop. He's inventing that life for himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Debru says in this book, the artist alone is the final judge of his work, Monsieur Figueres. And <laughs> I think that Wilford wants to say, is that true? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yes, especially because it ends up being, is he an artist? Has he actually painted anything? Does, what is his final judgment if he's never created any art? Right. <laughs> ah, it's a great book. It's a great book. Great writer, great book. After, after feasting on this book, Chris, what dessert would you recommend? I recommend Stanislaw Lim's A Perfect Vacuum. Oh, excellent. This is his collection of fictitious criticism of non-existent books. He makes up books and then writes critical reviews of them in different styles. Uh including he does one of, he writes as himself as Stanislaw Lim, a review of Perfect Vacuum itself as the intro. <laughs> but he also, so it's, he, um, he essentially creates these, these fake novels and then puts on the personas of different critics writing for different kinds of journals and academic research or what have you um, to then review them. And, it's really uh, fun and funny. It's not as famous as Pale Fire. In my mind, I always think of it as being the better version of Pale Fire in Ooh, some ways. Interesting. That, uh, I like Pale Fire a lot, but I think that it, it gets... Nabokov loves like ridiculousness, mm. and I think it gets just too ridiculous at times. And this one avoids being... Um, completely ridiculous this this book is deadpan straight-faced uh completely poker-faced uh uh take on all of this that this you read this and it does not read like a put-on at all it reads like actual critical reviews of these things it's deeply fascinating and uh and just has a multitude of stuff in it and i think you can see easily how it ties into the burnt orange heresy i don't even think that needs explication at this point it's funny that you say uh considered a better version of pale fire i always kind of think of it as like a step forward from you know the whole kilgore trout thing from kurt vonnegut's novels oh yeah where you'd have these uh make up these phony plots for these Uh, Z-grade science fiction pulp novels by the author Kilgore Trout is obviously a play on the name Theodore Sturgeon. Yes, um, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, we gotta, we gotta. That's a great. But we gotta get Lem on this uh, show sometime soon. Talk some. Yes, Stanislaw Lem. He's a great favorite yes. of mine as well. One of my um, one of my favorites. And we haven't talked enough sci-fi. If you ask me, I agree. 
my pick is a lot more superficial in terms of just comparing plots. It's The Ninth Gate by Roman Polanski, Ooh. Uh, based on Arturo Perez uh, Reverte's The Club Dumo, 1993 novel. Yeah, um, which is good. It is very good. And uh, the book itself would be a good comparison to Burnt Orange Heresy because uh, the main character is someone who is a, an expert in books, expert in publication, and goes around collecting books for clients rich clients you know who want very specific things but he also loves the swashbuckling books he loves the dumo he loves um the, the Raphael. uh oh my god sabatini sabatini's he yeah loves these books and so uh, really looks down on anyone else who even tries to keep up with him in terms of just analyzing these works and the history of these works and, and everything like that. But what Polanski took specifically from it was he's hired by a rich guy to locate uh, this. There's only three, nine books in existence. It's this book by a heretic who was burned at the stake in the 15th, no, the 16th century, um, which supposedly has the power to open the gates of hell. And so obviously in the movie, Franklin hell plays the, the rich guy is sort of the stand-in for the Cassidy character in Burton Orange Heresy. Although I was thinking reading Burton Orange Heresy this time that Langella would be a great casting for Deborah these days. I think he would be a really good choice. Um, <laughs> that fits that sort of mold, uh, again, of the absent artist and uh, finding this artwork that affects people in different ways. And also, you're, as a non-artist, as the main character in this is, as a book collector what his relationship to the artwork is. So that's what I would say would be a good comparison with this book. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, as you mentioned, it's one of the great absent artist movies. And uh, it's interesting because. Possibly the greatest. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Burnt Orange Heresy isn't an absent artist. It's an absent art movie. Yes. <laughs> I had absent art written down. You're absolutely right. <laughs> And uh, this is just... Well, I guess the is, twist is that it's an absent art movie. Uh, book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it, it in its own way, it opens the gates to hell. Yeah, but I, I'm happy we got to talk about this book. I feel like, you know, we, we rushed through it somehow, even though we've been talking, you know, for an hour and a half already about it. Um, it's amazing. That, it's only 150 pages long, but there really is so much to talk about. It's perfect. There's no fat on it. It doesn't waste any time. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's just so streamlined to that. It, it doesn't feel like, uh, he's burning words in it in any way. And it doesn't feel a need to set up some additional conflict with Cassidy to raise the stakes where Cassidy looks at and is like, this painting isn't real or whatever. It just really understands what's interesting about this story and doesn't spend one word on anything else. Absolutely agree. Dynamite. And the new movie is very, very good. I can imagine... I, I was somewhat disappointed in some of the changes it made, but I think just the change of setting and the change of, you know, the, the different time that it's set in, I think it all makes sense. And I think they were all smart choices. So I also highly recommend the movie when that eventually pops up in theaters. 
Yeah, and I recommend Double Hour as well, the his other theatrical release, which is an incredibly solid little thriller that takes uh, a few sort of mind-bending turns at times without going completely off the rails. Yeah, without being like overly showy or clever, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that it's not it doesn't that's why it it doesn't yeah, it doesn't get too cute. No, definitely. Definitely not. Um Thanks, everybody. We'll be back next month with our uh, horror pulp pick, which is going to be Feral by Bertrand Ruscha. It's a good killer cat book that we're going to be reading with uh, recurring guest Wendy Mays of the Great Pets, Wendy Mays of Pet Cinematary. So we're excited for that. And for our movie podcast, we're going to be, uh, we're also excited. We're going to have S.A. Bradley from Hellbent for Horror. Uh, joining us and we're going to be talking about some of our favorite horror movies of this decade 2010 to 2019 it's going to be great it's October fun and epic October's always fun to talk about it's going to be spooktacular (laughs) it's going to be goblin ninny I don't know. I couldn't turn that into one. It's going to be hellacious. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be October. Um, John, have a good night. You too, Chris. <laughs>